the way that space economics work is that if the bigger your vehicle, the lower your cost per unit weight, basically. Also, the other thing is if you can reuse it, then that also radically decreases your cost. And so, you know, when I was young, <laughs> it cost ten dollars to $100,000 per kilogram to send something into orbit. And SpaceX, I think, is now very close, if not below, with their standard launch vehicle, like $1,000 per kilogram. But Starship could push it like another factor of 10 down, so $100 per kilogram. So like, literally, you could go to space for whatever, a few thousand bucks. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akun, the founder and CEO of Mercury and an investor in 300 plus companies. And I'm Raj Suri, I'm founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And today we have George Whiteside, who ran Virgin Galactic for 10 years, was the chief of staff at NASA, invested in a bunch of wildfire companies, and now is running for Congress. A really impressive guy, wide variety of different areas that he's gone deep on, and difficult areas too. I mean, these are politics, wildfire, space. I'm really interested to talk to him. Yeah. One thing I love about George is he's just very thoughtful about where the future is going and is very optimistic in everything he describes, even in politics where, you know, I'm a little pessimistic when it comes to politics, but he's clearly taking a take where he can actually like influence change and improve the world, which I really appreciate. Yeah, it seems like no challenge daunts him, you know, like he's taken oh, yeah. on these things before, like they became even popular. I mean, space he was working on way before, you know, the current boom and uh, wildfire he's working on before it's like become a big thing to work on so yeah really interested to talk to him today george great to have you here uh i guess first step you know give us a quick rundown on your personal history like how did you get to where you are well i like to tell the story that i came out of college in the mid 90s and i was kind of interested in a few different things and so I went to a friend of our families who happened to have recently been the director of the CIA. I explained, here are the three things that I was kind of interested in. They were this new thing called the internet, the brain, and space. And he said, well, you know, brain is super interesting, but it's a little immature in terms of the tools that we have right now to study a very interesting area. Internet, not sure how that's going to be, but it seems like could be big. Whatever you do, don't go into space because there's just nothing <laughs> happening in that area. Wait, what year was that? Like 96, 97. Okay, got it. He was right in the sense that there wasn't like an amazing amount of, I would say, true innovation happening in space at that moment in time. Now, luckily, I kind of followed my gut and still went into space. And I happened to have been a part of this incredible journey of, you know, commercial space and innovation. And this just unrolled. Well, I was going to say, I hope you picked internet because, you know, that was 96, 97. That was like the beginning, right? Yeah. No, I mean, what could have been, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, so I, I basically chose space and um, I started doing, you know, commercial, proto-commercial space companies, which I can tell you about funny companies that were trying to send a robotic rover to the moon in a commercial thing and companies that were using parabolic flights to impart people with the feeling of weightlessness but yeah i would love to go into those but i guess like a lot of young people decide things and they end up going into like i don't know finance or something <laughs> much more boring like why was it that i feel like you had like three fairly interesting yeah. tastes like what kind of drove you to pick those three things well i've been doing a lot of reading and i think like many people i wanted to you know, be a part of something that was important and big, you know, and I think honestly, it's one of these things where like, I think any of those three could have been really interesting, right? You know, mm -hmm. internet is, you know, done all right over the last 25 years. So <laughs> that would have been interesting. But the brain too, is like this incredible time to understand the brain. And um, yeah, it just felt like those were three areas where there was going to be something, you know, really significant to the future of humanity. I feel like brain, we haven't made as much progress, right, in the other, as much as the other two areas. It's, it seems like it's still like this unknown frontier, or, or, you know, it's like something we haven't really fully understood yet. And they're hoping that they can use AI to figure that out, right? Yeah. If you think about it abstractly, like AI is kind of, 
making progress in brain, brain, right? Like kind of. One person said to me that it's like biotech in like the 70s, you know, before like all the tools were developed to really make super rapid. Mm -hmm. So we're getting these proto tools now together. But yeah, I think this century will be, we'll, we'll see some amazing progress in the brain for sure. Yeah. So tell us about your journey, I guess, with Virgin. Um, when did you get involved with that? I think you were first at NASA, right? I did these like sort of commercial entities. And then I did some nonprofit entities that were related to space, something called the National Space Society, which was you know, this really interesting public organization of people trying to support space. But I would say things got really exciting when I went to the Obama administration. I had uh, helped write a few policy papers for them. And they invited me to join the transition team, which is this, you know, group of people that comes in right after the election, literally like within a few days of the election and tries to get the new administration information about how things are going and what's most important. And so, you know, as part of that, for the next few years, I was involved in something that was tremendously exciting, which was you know, trying to encourage greater innovation adoption inside NASA, which is kind of weird, right? Because you think of NASA as like one of the most innovative things inside the federal government, and it is. But in the area of human spaceflight, there was the opportunity to kind of do more. And that was that was the time in which um, this idea of the commercial crew program, I would say, became the baseline for human spaceflight. The idea that you could procure commercial human spaceflight services was something that the Obama administration really doubled down on. And uh, and I think a lot of the incredible innovation that we see now in the world of space was at least in part generated by decisions made during those early years of the Obama administration in which the decision was made from the president himself, like, let's double down on innovation and, and see if we can do things differently. And that has paid off tremendously for uh, the United States. There's lots of ways that the U.S. government, especially like military and things like that, work with commercial things. But there was something like about the decision that NASA made that actually led to like them working with new companies like SpaceX and Virgin. And uh, so what was it about like birth? Why you thought this was the right decision? How it was constructed that actually like led to new innovation and new companies rather than kind of the normal government contractors? Yeah, I mean, you guys like going deep, right? So I'll I'll, get, I'll go deep on government procurement <laughs> policy, which is yeah, not always like yeah. the most ex- yeah, exciting thing. But, you know, a lot of the programs inside the human spaceflight sector up to that time had been based around cost plus contracts in which there was maybe less of a motivation to drive down the cost. And that was super important in human spaceflight. Well, actually in all spaceflight, because... Like one of the predominant costs in any space activity is the cost of getting your thing into space, right? One of the analogies that people use is that air travel would be pretty expensive if we threw away the 747 after we flew across the Atlantic each time. And it's actually roughly comparable, like it's order of magnitude, it's roughly the same cost to build a, a big rocket as it is to build an airplane. Can you define a little bit like what is cost plus and like why that even exists with like government contracts? Yeah, I mean, cost plus is you have a competition, you know, and so you have a few different prime contractors say we want to we will respond to this government need for a service or a product or whatever. And the structure of the contract is we're going to count up all the costs that we uh, have to accomplish this thing that you want you the government, and then we're going to put a fee on top of it, you know, and it'll be a whatever, an 8% or 10% or 15% fee on top. Mm-hmm. And and that's sort of contrasted with this thing called fixed price contracting, right? Where, you know, instead of saying we're going to, okay, add up all our costs and then put something on top, a fixed price contract is like, you know, is actually what most normal human beings deal with. You know, you go to the store and you buy a candy bar and it's a dollar or whatever, and companies can innovate on the cost of, of that service, you know. And the reason why fixed price contracting exists is because a lot of these programs are, are hard and you don't know exactly how much they're going to cost to achieve. That would be the generous way of talking about it. But, you know, to sort of get back to like the space thing, you know, how much it costs to put things in space is crucial, right? Like that determines a huge proportion of like what the overall cost of that service is. And like from a big picture, if you do not lower the cost of space access, then a lot of the things that 
might be possible in space activity are just too expensive, right? Because it just costs so much. And so if you have a cost plus structure where people are not incentivized to drive down the underlying cost of the service of launch provides, then the game doesn't change, right? Like that we're kind of stuck. And, and that's what we had seen. In fact, the cost of space access through the space shuttle program had essentially kind of gone up or at least remained steady. And that was a fundamental problem, right? Like unlike many different services where the costs are slowly coming down because of efficiencies or you learn how to do things better or whatever, um, the cost of space access were not going, going down. And so we thought that if we could potentially change some of these contracting mechanisms and also establish competition, which I'm a big fan of, particularly in uh, government services, um, then maybe we could start to, you know, bring those things that are so great about the American economy, right? Like really good competition and and innovation. Then maybe that would have an impact on the cost of space access. Because uh, if we couldn't do that, then our big space, you know, aspirations wouldn't wouldn't happen. And like I can get into what happened, but like the, the headline is it worked. You know, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. partly due to SpaceX, but also due to several other amazing companies, that cost has now been coming down. And what's great about that is that that's not really great in itself. It is cool from a space nerd perspective, and I consider myself a space nerd. But what's more important is that it enables all these other applications, you know, that benefit life on Earth or that enable us to explore the solar system or whatever. It enables all this other stuff to happen, which is super important. Was that initiative from the government itself? Like, hey, we have a goal. We want to like make space access cheaper. We're going to encourage private companies to like do this. Or was it kind of like driven by the entrepreneurial ecosystem? Like people like Elon were working on these things and uh, it kind of encouraged the government to look at it and say, yeah, maybe this doesn't make sense. You know, how did that begin? Yeah, I mean, it was really kind of a mix of both. Like I would say that there was a group of folks who were really interested in bringing more competition to the space sector um, who are outside of government, but who then started to feed those ideas inside of government. And that was part of what did it. But then like it never would have happened if there weren't some at least nascent companies that were really doing things like it was it would be hard to make the bet on commercial space if there was just nothing there. And and so there was, you know, SpaceX was was kind of early days and uh, there were a few other companies, Orbital Sciences, you know. I'll give you an interesting statistic. So in 2000, guess what the market share for the U.S. uh, launch providers were on the international market? 10% maybe? Yeah. Roger, what do you think? 20%? Yeah. So zero. So we we won no launches (laughs) uh, against others Mm -hmm. because we had like a a fairly expensive cost base. And now, of course, SpaceX and others are just dominating the market. You know, I don't know what it says, you know, over 70 percent or something and maybe going north of that in terms of other metrics, like how much mass to orbit. And I think this is a great American success story, right? Like Mm -hmm. by doubling down on innovation and sort of wonky stuff like contracting, you know, procurement law or or procurement rules, we were able to sort of shift the system into this really incredible rate of innovation. And and like that has gotten me thinking about like other places where where we could do this. Um, I don't want to move off space too quickly, but like it is interesting to think about like how could we bring this kind of innovation to other other sectors. I think it's worth, I guess, like just finishing off this thread, like if you had to pick like another two or three sectors where government could change things and be much more innovative what would be like the next two or three kind of options for you well i'm personally like really interested in wildfires right now and you know the wildfire problem is a huge problem it's it's a problem that affects millions of people through wildfire smoke around the world and uh, it's a problem that's getting worse and one of the interesting things is that the government agencies that are tasked to uh, work on this problem are, I would say, by and large, they have less experience at developing applied engineering solutions. Mm-hmm. This is like forest management, like what area of the government like covered this? You know, the main agency is the U.S. Forest Service, right? And then there's also the Department of Interior. And these are really natural resource agencies, you know, that have grown deep expertise in that area of stuff, but not so much like sort of like, okay, well, we have this need for a tool, and how do we achieve the development of such and such a thing? Like, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of the things that's a really important problem in 
wildfire resilience right now is how do you do controlled burns on the landscape in such a way that they don't escape and cause much bigger fires, right? So mm -hmm. like we can go deep on, you know, wildfire resilience as well, but like the top level is that we probably need to bring more good fire to the landscape, which is what used to happen. You know, the, the mm -hmm. indigenous peoples and the native tribes would actually start fires at the right times in the year and bring sort of low intensity fire to the landscape and keep the overall fuel load. Fuel is just a word for like biological material plants and trees keep that at a manageable level so that you didn't have these huge mega fires that we now see, you know, almost on an annual basis in the American West. And so one of the technical challenges that we need right now is we need to, in order to bring those forests back into balance, back into a healthy balance is we need to bring uh, controlled burns back into that ecosystem. But it's challenging because there's so much fuel right now that it's dangerous to do that. And so we need techniques and potentially engineering solutions that would help us to do that in a safe way. The downside is if we don't do it in a safe way, you know, you can have these uh, escapes where, you know, you have these really big fires. There was a big fire in New Mexico uh, last year from a planned burn that turned into this uncontrolled burn. The analogy I like to make mm -hmm. is that the people who are doing this planned burns are sort of like the guys who are defusing bombs. It can be a dangerous operation in a high fuel op area because, um, you literally have so much fuel in the, the wildlands that if you, mm. you know, just are unlucky, like say that the wind comes up or, it, you know, some condition changes that you can suddenly have this escape. So we've been thinking a lot about how do you have technologies that could help, whether it's sensing technologies that can allow you to see and predict where a fire might get worse, or even mechanical solutions like this incredible company called BurnBot, which is based in San Francisco. They've got this a system that would enable them to sort of create a pixel of land. They would burn a perimeter of an area of land and then they have that safe pixel and then they can bring a drone into the middle and drop some fire in with the drone and safely burn that pixel. And then you can sort of like pixelate the landscape and have safer controlled burns. Anyway, it's mm. just one idea, but like we're going to need more of this kind of applied engineering stuff to, I think, help us with natural systems problems in, in the future. Is kind of government contracting and like all of the stuff kind of in the way or is it helping? Like, is it easy for these kind of entrepreneurs to like sell their solutions? It's a, it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to be honest. And um, partly that's because as an entrepreneur, selling into the government is really painful often. This almost seems worse because it's decentralized as well, right? Like there's an yeah, industry, yeah. like one person you're selling it to. Her. Right. No, you have to go to like all these different forest areas or forests and it's really painful. So I think, you know, like there are ways that we can make that less painful and turn it into bigger markets and such that, you know, we can bring more innovation to the space. It's not going to be solved just by innovation, to be clear. Like our challenges are bigger than that. We also need really good forest science. We need you know, natural solutions. We need all these different things, but like technical pieces will be part of the solution and we should make it, in my opinion, easier for innovators to try to help. Yeah. Um, maybe coming back to space. So I guess you'd had like a pretty broad look at space before you joined Virgin Galactic. What got you excited about, I guess, their mission around space tourism and why did you decide to kind of pick that? Yeah. And so like maybe just as an introduction, like I'm not connected to the company anymore, but I was CEO for 10 years and then I was the chair of the advisory board for a couple of years, which I've now stepped off. And I think what excited me most was uh, two things. One was this idea that we would try to move human spaceflight more towards airline-like operations. And what I mean by that is high flight rates, and with reusable vehicles, fully reusable or almost fully reusable vehicles, like not throwing away the 747 when you fly it to, you know, mm -hmm. the other side of yep. the country. That was part of it. And then the other part was, I do believe that the perspective of space is important to humanity's future. The recognizing that we live on this planet with this thin film of, you know, life on the surface that's you know, bounded by, you know, a few tens of miles of atmosphere is actually like a really important perspective for all of humanity to have. It's not going to solve everything, but I do think that bringing that experience to more people and having them then bring that experience back to their home communities around the planet could be a, 
an important piece of support to solving the big global challenges that we have. The primary business model for Virgin Galactic was space tourism, right? Or probably still is space tourism. Still is, yeah. Still is, yeah. I guess on the surface of it, it doesn't seem like there would be that many people who would want to pay. I mean, you're probably charging quite a lot of money for these experiences. What was the order of magnitude? Like tens of millions or? No, it's like, I mean, it's still super expensive, but it's like a few hundred thousand dollars. And so that's very expensive for most people, uh, for me. But it is, to be clear, like a factor of 100 or more cheaper than other ways to get to space, right? It's not exactly mm-hmm. the same thing, you know, like an orbital journey where you're going into orbit around the planet is different than a suborbital journey where you're just going into space and coming back down. But you still get that experience of going into space and looking down at our home planet or looking at our home planet. And so, you know, that kind of price change, you know, going from a ticket on, you know, SpaceX, they don't have a public price list, but, you know, it's been estimated to be around $50 million or so to say a hundredth of that or, you know, two hundredth of that is exciting. And a lot of these products just in general often start relatively expensive and then they go down in price. The first flights across the Atlantic were I think in real dollars, like $80,000, if you adjusted it to today's dollars, you know, and now you can get a ticket for 500 bucks or whatever. So these things often start expensive and and then come down in price. Virgin Galactic has this kind of cool concept where they have a plane that goes super high in orbit and then drops basically another plane with a rocket attached to it. Why did you decide that that was the concept for for it versus, I guess, you know, doing a rocket from from Earth that goes all the way up and then lands back down. Yeah, so the basic idea was that uh, the company would try to use airline or aircraft-like technologies as much as possible. So, mm-hmm. you know, for the first 50,000 feet and the last 50,000 feet, it was just, you know, using wings. Literally, jet aviation is the safest form of transportation, I think, that you can take on the planet. And so the idea was, let's use that. It's cheapest and um, safest for the first bit and the last bit. And then you would use rocket technologies for the uh, the middle bit, for going to space. Mm-hmm. The idea was that that was going to be relatively uh, safe and affordable. All of these technologies are still in their early days, right? We are not, to be clear, at flying a 737 four or five times a day, you know, like Southwest does. But we're taking steps towards that. And that's the kind of thing. I mean, you know, SpaceX should really be super congratulated for now reusing single boosters, you know, many single boosters more than 10 times. I mean, that's a super impressive technical achievement. And I'm old enough to remember when people thought that was never going to work or never be a thing that could work. And now, like, people don't even pay attention to it. Like, it's not even news when, you know, the 100th SpaceX booster lands safely on a barge in the middle of the Atlantic. Like, that's just crazy that we made that change. This concept of taking a plane to 50,000 feet and then launching a rocket from it, does the maths work out to do that but go all the way into, like, an orbital space or, like, just just get it out of the Earth's gravity well completely? Or is is that too hard in terms of like the masses involved? No, you can do it. And in fact, a different Virgin company called Virgin Orbit uh, have successfully accomplished that with a different vehicle and a different vehicle system. Oh, they did? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the challenge is that when you want to get really big or get much bigger, it gets harder mm-hmm. because then you get a you need to have a really big airplane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like a, a SpaceX rocket or whatever are quite heavy, you know. And so to do that from an air launch platform would require a really huge airplane. I see. The airplane has to be like maybe three times bigger than the like payload or something like that to like make it work. Yeah, I don't know what the right proportion is. There is actually a, a very big airplane that has been created. It's in Mojave, California. It's the biggest airplane in the world. And it was originally created to launch rockets to space, pretty big rockets. Oh, really? What's it called? It's called Strato Launch, or that's what the name of the company is. And it's a huge plane. It's kind of the size of two 747s connected at the wing. Yeah. It's not two 747s connected at the wing, but it's the same size as that, basically. And their idea was to have a, a rocket that was not quite as big as the standard 
Falcon 9 SpaceX rocket, but something a bit smaller and, and to launch that from underneath. So what's interesting is like even the biggest plane in the world could not launch the standard SpaceX hmm. rocket. Like you needed to have a smaller rocket. I thought the biggest airplane was that Ukraine one. There was a, a huge one in Ukraine, right? That was destroyed in the war. Yeah, huge one. The Aleutian, I, I, th I think it was Aleutian. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But um, yeah, this it's got two fuselages, uh, the mm -hmm. big one in, in Mojave. Oh, wow. And I think actually the Ukrainian one could maybe potentially carry more. I'm not sure. But certainly in terms of, uh, I think, wingspan, the one in Mojave is bigger. What were the biggest technical challenges you faced at Virgin Galactic to, you know, go from, I guess, zero to getting kind of suborbital flight with these things? And it looks like they'll be launching their first like commercial flights this year, I guess. So it's like been, um, what, a decade plus journey, right? Um, multiple yeah. decades to get to where they are. It's certainly been a long journey. All the stuff that you would probably imagine, you know, um, getting the rocket right was a big part of the challenge. And you know, just all the different technical bits were, were quite challenging. When you do these things for the first time and then when you try to scale them up, it takes a lot of time to get it, to get it right. And, and when you're doing it in a, a human spaceflight vehicle, so our vehicle was not autonomous. It required pilots in both of the carrier and the spaceship. And so that meant we had to be super careful for every test. We wanted to try to do everything we could to, to not lose a vehicle because people were flying on board every time. In hindsight, would you have preferred to have made an autonomous platform or do you think that would have added like too much work? When the program was conceived, which is, um, you know, in some ways 20 years ago, it was definitely faster not to have an autonomous system on board. Mm -hmm. But I think that over the course of the 20 years, like that balance has maybe shifted a bit. And certainly an argument could be made that the fast iteration that SpaceX has demonstrated through sort of like learning through failure in a way mm -hmm. has enabled them to progress quite quickly. Yeah, they can take more risks so they don't have to bet a human life on it. Makes sense, yeah. Where do you see uh, space programs and commercial spaceflight going over the next few decades? It seems like there's even more interest in the space than ever before, more companies in the space, a lot of innovation probably than, you, you know, <laughs> compared to two decades ago and when you were asking the question in the 1990s. So it's an exciting time. What are you most excited about in the space? I say to young people who are just graduating from college with aero astro degrees that they are literally graduating into a new golden age, right? You know, if you know folks who are interested in space, like it's such a great time. There's so many great jobs. There's so many great companies. There's so many great problems to work on. You know, it's just awesome. It's a great, great time to be in the space sector and aerospace in general, but particularly space. And, you know, part of that is driven by the fact that it's not just one program now. It's not a monolithic program. It's there's all these different companies in the Bay Area is filled with them. L.A. is filled with them. Colorado is filled with them. American South, different parts around Huntsville is filled with them. So there are all these great different things that are going on. And some of them, you know, will not succeed, but many of them will. And having like a lot more shots on goal will enable, I think, great things to happen. Personally, you know, here are like three things that I'm super excited about. So one is the SpaceX Starship vehicle, which is this one that they're testing right now. It hasn't worked yet, but if it does work, their aspiration is to have a fully reusable, super heavy launch vehicle, basically, which nobody has done, right? And the way that space economics work is that if the bigger your vehicle, the lower your cost per unit weight, basically. Also, the other thing is if you can reuse it, then that also radically decreases your uh, cost. And so, you know, when I was young, <laughs> it cost mm -hmm. ten dollars to $100,000 per kilogram to send something into orbit, right? And SpaceX, I think, is now very close, if not below, with their standard launch vehicle, like $1,000 per kilogram. Mm -hmm. But Starship could push it like another factor of 10 down, so $100 per kilogram. You know, so like literally you could go to space for whatever, a few thousand bucks. What is it that makes that equation nonlinear? Like, why is it like twice as much doesn't cost twice as much? Yeah, I mean, on the reuse side, you know, it's quite clear, right? So if you have a hundred million dollar vehicle and you can reuse it a thousand times, then, you know, you're just going to have an amortization of, you know, divide by a thousand. Um, on the 
other side, like on the putting bigger things up generates this great efficiency curve, it's, it's more like it sort of flattens out at the small side. So on the small side, you still have to have all these engines, all this, all these mm. electronic systems. And so like basically with the bigger vehicles, the underlying complexity of the vehicle doesn't increase as fast as the amount of mass that you're putting up, right? So like one electronics box is sort of similar between different size vehicles. I see. So the fixed cost is basically like relatively fixed. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's not exactly that way, but it's sort of that way. You know, you're just adding bigger tanks and maybe a few more engines on board. So I was wondering whether it's something to do with kind of the surface area versus the volume resistance. I think it's like more probably related to the underlying complexity. Like the underlying complexity is less different than you might think between a small and a big launch vehicle. A lot of it's just additional tankage. So that would be huge. If we could, in the course of my lifetime, decrease the cost of space access by a factor of, you know, from my youth, say $100,000 down to 100, like so a factor of 1,000, that would be really huge and would enable all these amazing things to, to happen, exploration of the moon and Mars, other things like that. Second thing that I'm really excited about on a science basis is exoplanets. So I don't know if you guys know about the James Webb Space Telescope, but this is this new telescope that NASA has, mm-hmm. which is this multi-segment mirror. They put it out at a Lagrange point. That thing and follow-on telescopes. Is that the one on the other side of the moon? Yeah, basically. Yeah. We will be able to use those to eventually directly image other planets, not in our solar system. And that is oh. going to be absolutely revolutionary because we're going to be able to Uh, use spectroscopy to see the atmospheric constituents of that planet, and we'll be able to start seeing potentially signs of life. Can we do that like today, or there's something else they need to do to that telescope? So we're right on the edge of it today. James Webb will enable us to do spectroscopy of close-in planets of certain types. Mm. But if you combine like the volume capacity of Starship, we could start thinking about huge space-based telescopes that would enable us to potentially even see continents on other planets, you know? And now that's a visual representation of our resolution. And then there would be, you know, associated spectroscopic resolution. But like, if we could start seeing like methane or oxygen lines or, you know, different things on a planet that we know that's in the right distance from the sun, we know it's the right temperature for uh, liquid water, Man, that's exciting, right? Like, and that could happen over the next few decades, right? That's something to get up in the morning about because like we could potentially see strong evidence, maybe not proof, but evidence for life on other planets. And, you know, we're not there yet, but that's within reach. That is absolutely within reach in our lifetimes. And I have to say that I'm I'm really excited about the applications for Earth, right? I mean, what uh, SpaceX and other companies are doing, Blue is, or Amazon rather, is building one of these as well. But these global communications networks are really powerful, particularly for places which fiber trunks are not easily accessible. You know, so if we can really bring the edge of high bandwidth to the entire planet and combine that maybe with AI education, like we could have a dramatic impact on the planet. I saw this amazing talk at TED this year by Sal Khan, you know, the guy who started uh, Khan Academy. And he basically showed this curve, which showed a standard distribution of students in a 25-person class or whatever was like this. And then he showed a distribution for one-on-one tutoring. And basically the distribution was pushed over by 50%. So like your lowest performers were average, your you know middle performers were now above average and you and there were a lot more students excelling in the top category and that's the promise of sort of one to one instruction right and if we could bring that you know have ai tutors or whatever you know combined with high bandwidth essentially low cost communications to you know bring that to billions of people around the world imagine like what will unlock um from humanity as a whole that's a really exciting idea and while it's not purely due to you know space tech space tech could help a lot uh, in terms of bringing that connection to a lot of people i guess you're not kind of that excited about Mars since it's not in your top three? Do you think it is like a something that would be useful to humans to like go colonize Mars? I am tremendously excited about the moon and Mars, um, both of them, to be honest. And when I was young, 
if you can believe it, I went to the founding convention of the Mars Society and I gave a talk, you know, about the rallying of my generation, which is, I think, technically Gen X, you know, to go to Mars. I think it's all about what are we going to do? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, why are we going? And let's not have another Apollo flags and footprints. I mean, the Apollo program was an incredible achievement, no doubt. I think as we progress in space exploration, we should aspire to sustainable programs that can last, that are not just sort of touching down, doing a few missions, and then not going for 50 years, which is what's happened with Apollo. What would we do in Mars apart from like going a few missions? We'd look for life, have a long-term science program to look for life. And that, I think, is okay. the primary thing that we would do, at least in my mind, on Mars. Why do you think it's that important to find life there? As in, it's not there anymore, probably, right? It might be. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've been following the science, but like there are apparently these liquid water aquifers, or I don't know if that's the right word, but like under under the surface, there's probably liquid water on Mars, or there could be liquid water. And, you know, life, like literally everywhere where we see liquid water on Earth, there's life. And so it'd be super interesting if there was no life on Mars, I think, actually, in those liquid water areas. And, and having, you know, a second planet of life, I think is very profound. Like, I think that's worthy of spending some of our nation's budget on. Like, that is a really profound thing. And we might find that it looks exactly like life on Earth, like a DNA sense, you know, or maybe it's different. I think it's much more likely that it's actually like life on Earth, like, you know, microbiota, whatever. There's this well-established phenomenon where you have basically rocks from one planet get knocked off one planet and go to the other planet. And, you know, certain types of spores and other things could probably survive. How would you get a rock from Earth to Mars? Like, that sounds insane. Yeah, I mean, it's not happening as much these days, but earlier in the solar system, basically you just have a big whack of an asteroid and it would hit the Earth or hit Mars and knock some rocks into orbit. In wow. fact, the ring of my wife has like a little piece of Mars in it. It's pretty cheap. Like you can buy, you go online and what they can do is they can look at this, you know, essentially the chemical signature of the rock and they can tell that it's from Mars. So, wow, that's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, we have Mars rock on Earth, <laughs> and there is definitely Earth rock on Mars, for sure. Got it. So the theory would be, like, at some point when life had evolved on probably the Earth, like, it could have been knocked in, some asteroid hit and knocked it to Mars, and, like, that might be the origins of life on Mars. Actually, my wife is a biologist who does astrobiology. I'm not, so I could be getting some of this wrong. But, I mean, people have thought that there, there was, like, liquid water on Mars for a long time, probably hundreds of millions of years. And so it could even be the other direction in mind. Mm, that'd be cool. What about the idea of establishing, like, a base or a pod of people living anywhere in space in the relative near term? Is that something, apart from exploring life, but actually establishing our own life there. Is that something that's ever been, I mean, it's obviously in all the movies. Is that something that, yeah. that you think is a realistic at all? I mean, to me, it's, it's all about, you know, utility to planet earth and science, you know? And so I think what we've seen in space is like, there's gotta be a strong business case. And that business case is either based on science, which is government supported, or it could be national security based spy satellites and the like, or it's got to have a commercial purpose. And so if, if there is, that strong commercial purpose. And there are, you know, several now, whatever you want to call it, habitat companies that are trying to create space habitats. That's pretty exciting. And that could be, you know, something that would be really interesting if we could, if we could get it to uh, a point of commercial sustainability. What would be the commercial purpose, like mining something? Or could the commercial purpose be like, hey, this is like a house in space or something? Or that's just like not realistic? I was interpreting Roger's question to be like a free-floating space station. But I mean, the world space agencies are moving towards the idea, at least, of an ongoing presence on the moon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, primarily for science, I think. And I think that would be really exciting. And it's a doable thing. But the, the key thing for me is like, the cheaper we can make space access, the more doable that is, right? Yeah, yeah. So when it's $10,000 a kilogram, that's like a pretty expensive station. But if we can move that price to $100 a kilogram, then the cost of that station is going to be dramatically less. Is there something about the moon that makes it more interesting than just a orbital space habitat? 
Well, I mean, there are resources on the moon, right? So there are things that you could take advantage of. Uh, You can, you know, build shielding out of the material on the earth, on the moon's surface. And there is at least dilute water and other things that you could uh, essentially take from the the surface. They're quite dilute, but Mm -hmm. that could potentially serve as a basis for uh, rocket fuel or, or other things. You can also do really cool radio astronomy on the far side of the moon, because as you know, like the yeah. far side of the moon is always face, facing away from the Earth. And so you could do like really sensitive radio astronomy looking looking outward, which would be spectacular from a science perspective. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool to use the moon's material to construct or use it. I guess we've never done that before. Yeah, people are working on it. Like they're trying to create glasses or, I mean, fused, you know, silica to create different structures and then bake out, you know, some of the volatiles that could be used for fuel or other purposes. No, oh, cool. I wanted to go to, back to this other point you made. You said that like right now is a really interesting time for someone kind of entering the space industry. Maybe this is like a little bit of a Silicon Valley view on it, but, you know, it feels like, I guess, capital is a lot less abundant than it was two years ago. And if you take the zero interest rate environment, like we had a lot of space companies get funded. And then obviously the other side of it is kind of billionaires funding space companies, whether it's Virgin uh, or SpaceX or Blue Origin. So at least on the capital side, do you feel like there'll be a contraction given that interest rates are higher? Maybe people want their investments to like have more immediate returns. Uh, I guess like how do you view that capital landscape changing and affecting space? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm like a super expert on this topic, but I mean, the speculation in the, in the economy as a whole has been reduced and that's clear. But I think that there's still, you know, good funding for companies that have strong business plans. There's this great company called Astronus that a friend of mine has founded, which is doing essentially small geostationary satellites that are for discrete areas. And so their first one, I think, is to do high bandwidth comms for the state of Alaska. And they're very successful as far, from what I understand. As long as there's a strong business case, I think it's sort of moved from being this somewhat esoteric area of the economy maybe 20 years ago to being, you know, a respected kind of area of venture investing and and even, you know, later types of investing now. So it's gotten rid of the weirdness of the, you know, what was associated 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Got it. So still doable, but probably harder than two years ago. Probably are. I mean, what what isn't harder than two years? Uh, you know, what is, <laughs> what is not? Well, well, SpaceX success by itself, right? Probably yeah, it's been good enough for a lot of to justify a lot of other investing in the space. But people made a return on that, right? Uh, or I think they have, in general, been able to sell stock, etc. Has there been any other like notable success? I know Virgin went public as well. Any other notable successes in the space? Yeah, I mean, several companies I think are building great businesses. You may be familiar that there's a company called Maxar, which does imaging. Uh, I think they were just taken private, you know, so somebody made money out of that. I'm a big fan of Planet Labs and many other of these Earth remote sensing companies that are doing great work. And And I think that these big global constellations for communications will also be eventually successful. I don't know if all of them will be successful, but at least a few of them will. And, and I think that that'll be really beneficial to humanity. I actually do want to ask one question about Wildfire, which is what what made you decide? I mean, you're a space geek for so many years, almost two decades, it looks like, right? And then you're like, I'm going to spend my time on Wildfire. What what made that change? You could go into space investing, too, because you you have so much knowledge in the sector. I really wanted to help on a climate-related problem. And I wanted to find something that was, I thought, maybe somewhat relatively underinvested and something that my technical experience base could maybe help with. And, Mm. you know, wildfire is, I think, all three of those things. You know, it's a problem. You know, obviously, it's a natural system, but it's one that is exacerbated by climate change. It's getting worse. Eight of the 10 largest megafires in California history have happened over the last five years. It is something that I think has received maybe less attention than other areas of the climate challenges. And you know, I think that many of the technologies that we have in aerospace, whether it's sensing technologies from space or aerial platforms or suppression technologies, rotorcraft or fixed wing drones, 
and many other things seemed like they were at least relevant. And it's proven to be the case for sure. And uh, you mentioned uh, some of the work you're interested in and some of the challenges as well in selling to government. Where do you think this goes? I'm, I'm curious about welfare, just your perspective over the next year. You mentioned about space. Where do you think that goes in the next 10 years? What do you think it looks like in the wildfire uh, sector, like in the next 10, 20 years? And maybe in an ideal way, what, what uh, technology do you think will become mainstream? How will governments and the um, you know, private industry collaborate to, to tackle this, which seems like it's getting worse, right? So there needs to be a solution uh, in the near term. Yeah, I mean, I think that that last part is what I would probably start with. I think it's going to get worse. Like the reality on the ground is going to get worse. So my wife, you know, grew up in Santa Rosa, California, and they had the Tubbs fire in 2017, which, you know, had the loss of 5,000 homes and structures. And Paradise, shortly after that, was, I think, 18,000 structures. Australia, Southern Europe is becoming an all too common thing. And you know, there are two things that are really scary about this. One is the idea of these conflagrations that come down from the wildland, but then enter into the, you know, the city or the town city, and just yeah. burn. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what happened in Santa Rosa. That's scary. I think we're going to have some really bad examples of that. And I don't know if it's this year or over the next five years or 10 years, but we're going to have some really bad examples of that. And I think that that's going to spur bigger change both in how we deal with the problem and, and the resources that are allocated to it. The things that I think that we need are threefold. The, the first thing that we need is we need to make our towns more resilient. And that is literally making sure that our houses, to the extent possible, are less likely to go on fire. And I could talk to you about how to do that. But anyway, that's one of the things that we need to do. And we need to do that, particularly on the perimeter of communities, because it's been shown that that can help prevent those, you know, piercing uh, conflagrations that go deep into the town. It's the first thing we need to do. Second thing we need to do is to uh, create more resilient landscapes, which means basically removing excess fuel from the forest. And we can do that in a bunch of different ways. There's some interesting technologies that are going to be helpful for that. Um, But also it's just going to be like we're going to have to hire a lot more people to do that work. And that is a big issue. And we're going to have to, you know, pay them well and give them year round work and There's a whole separate workforce area of this. And then I personally am very excited about something that's a little controversial in the wildfire community, but that is the idea of rapid sensing and response, right? And so the thing is that on a bad fire day, the hottest, driest, windiest days, if you can't get to a fire in like five or 10 minutes, and maybe even that is pushing it, then it's going to be very hard to contain it because it expands, you know, exponentially in size. And so we need to have technologies where we can super rapidly see a fire that's dangerous and then quickly put resource on it. And I think that that's exactly the kind of stuff that the aerospace world, you know, can help with, right? Because we could have a global sensing system. In fact, I'm working with uh, EDF on um, a study that they have going to have, a, you know, some thinking on, on that. But, you know, many different companies could then implement that. But, you know, that's one part of it. And it could also be like aerial platforms. Like one of the things that I'm really excited about are these uh, remotely piloted drones that have solar panels on the wings and a big uh, battery. It's a really simple idea. But, you know, having that circling in the stratosphere is almost like a satellite. And um, Airbus has actually created this now, um, but we need to reduce the cost of it dramatically. So we need, instead of $15 million, it needs to be like a million or $100,000. And you could just have this orbiting satellite looking at a high-risk area when you know that there's going to be a high-risk day. Um, And then I think what we need in terms of technology, and this is maybe the controversial thing, is is it seems to me that having a network of remotely piloted or autonomous vehicles distributed in higher fire-risk areas that have significant capability, so they can drop 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 pounds of retardant or water on a fire. But if they could get there in five minutes you could really be able to shape fire behavior in California. That seems obvious. Why is it controversial? I think a lot of people have been talking about this for many years. And so many people in the fire community are like, I'm just trying to like actually fight this fire and this stuff never works. But I do think that actually we're getting to the point where like this stuff could be real. And the billions of dollars that have been invested in so-called EV tolls, the electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles like Joby Aviation and others, 
you know, those are the kinds of vehicles that might be very interesting for that. Like you could imagine plugging in, you know, these vehicles along a utility line. So they have constant power, you know, they're electric, right? So you don't need to fuel them up and they're relatively low maintenance. And then, you know, and they could just pop out and uh, they're quite quick, you know, 200 knots, 300 knots, and they could get somewhere. Their radius of access within five or 10 minutes is pretty big. And I'll tell you an interesting statistic. We, I was part of a study recently where we looked at the cost to California of wildfires on an annual basis. What do you think the cost is? Just guess. Maybe like $3 billion would be my guess. I would guess $1 billion. Okay, so if you look at the direct cost, like my house burned down, you're mm-hmm. in the, let's call it $10 billion range, something like that, 5 wow. to $10 billion. So you're, you're sort of right. Per year. Yeah, per year. But here's what will bake your noodle. That is absolutely the smallest part of the cost. So the real cost is in two things. One is the economic activity that's disrupted by a megafire. So like, for example, when it's super smoky in Lake Tahoe, people don't go to Lake Tahoe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you disrupt the summer tourism season. That is a huge impact. And then the other one is the smoke impact on a marginal basis for millions of people. So you have, you know, smoke blowing over the entire Midwest, you know, and that's decreasing the lifespan of a million people by, you know, a year or whatever. And if you look at those costs, it's on the order of $100 billion per year, which is an amazing number because it's actually sort of one to 3% of California's GDP. And when you're talking about a number that's like $100 billion of true cost to the economy, you can contemplate things that might have a fairly big cost. So like, I think we could put, you know, this network of uh, vehicles out there for a few billion dollars, you know, which is a lot of money. But when you're thinking about something that's $100 billion per year, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And that's just the California. That's just California. Yeah. seems like something that would be relatively straightforward to test in some way, even if it's expensive uh, to test it, you know, in a region that is prone to like high wildfires yeah. and see whether it can make a difference. And if it can, you could come up with a business case, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. In fact, the XPRIZE Foundation just launched a prize. You may have noticed it. The wild, XPRIZE Wildfire, I don't know what they're calling it, but it's basically to test this. So the prize is, I'm going to get this wrong a little bit, but they have this fairly big area of land. And you have to have two things. You have to have the sensing piece and you have to have the management piece. So you have to find it quickly and then you have to have something that can put that fire out quickly. So they're going to test this over the next few years, see if people have great and I know there are already several companies like Rain is doing a lot of great work in this area and others that I think will bring really interesting technology to this area. How does it work within like five minutes you're putting out a fire in an area? Like, are these planes or vehicles pretty high up and they can kind of like swoop in within five Because that's a really short amount of time. Yeah, it is a really short amount. I mean, that's why it hasn't happened, yeah. right? And so, <laughs> I mean, there's like a bunch of different challenges, but many of them are almost like analogs to military activity. <laughs> so like precisely detecting a target and then putting mass on that target are things that the obviously the U.S. military is very good at. And this is a little different in the sense that you're dropping, you know, a liquid or a gel rather than, you know, a bomb or whatever. So I do think actually there's going to be a lot of work on trajectory management. What we know is that the closer you can get, the more accurate you're going to get. And one of the challenges with higher flying fixed wing aircraft is that you'll drop you know, this water or whatever, but a lot of it won't make it to the ground or will be too diffuse to make a big difference. So like you really want these things flying like right over the fire and then dropping that mass right on top of the fire close in. You can do that with these eVTOL vehicles, right? Because they can transition from sort of like uh, horizontal flight to more up and down. We can get there quickly and, and do it. So like it's clearly within the capacity of humans to do this. The challenge is like how expensive is it going to be and how effective is it going to be and how tightly linked is it going to be to a sensing network? Because that's the other part. You got to be able to see it really fast. Also, Raj, the idea is there's hundreds of these things. So like every, I guess, together within 10 minutes, you'd need like every 10 miles, you'd have to have like a device. Yeah. It's almost like a fire station, right? Like you have like fire yeah, stations exactly. in every neighborhood, right? So like, yeah. That's actually a great way to put it, actually. You just, it's like an aerial fire station. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. I have no doubt that this will become the case over time. It's just a question of like how long it's going to take. Yeah. 
Uh, I'd love to talk about politics briefly. You know, I think it's really interesting that you're running for Congress. Obviously, most kind of operators and business people avoid politics. So what got you kind of over the hump and how do we inspire kind of other people to also go into politics? I have been thinking about running for a few years and maybe like many people, I'll just be super honest. During the Trump administration, I was really offended by a lot of what I saw. And I didn't feel like sometimes I could say as much as I felt um, because I felt a big loyalty to also the folks in the company to make sure that I was protecting their jobs and aerospace is tightly linked with, you know, federal regulation. And there was, you know, some examples of retribution against companies. And anyway, so I felt like, you know, if I got to a point in my life where I was, you know, less constrained and that it was something that I wanted to do. I think the headline is that there are a lot of really important problems to work on that I think the government can play a big role in, you know, community safety, child safety, climate, obviously, um, housing, even, you know, the fundamental conditions for job creation. These are big things. And and like I'm a huge believer in public-private cooperation or, or like connection, you know. That's what mm-hmm. we saw in the Obama administration around space. Like if you could get that meshing of gears going between the innovation of the private sector and properly constructed federal policy, like great things are possible. So I'm like an optimist. I'm a problem solver. I'm somebody who thinks that we can like work on these problems in a productive way, but we need to be outcomes focused. We need to be thinking about like, what is the thing that we want to achieve? Maybe a little bit less on the process part. What do we want? We want a clean energy economy. How do we achieve that? What do we want? We want like vastly more housing for, especially in the American West. You know, what do we want? We want cleaner transportation, right? So that, you know, dirty air doesn't cause our kids' asthma to spark up. But are you not concerned that like you kind of go into politics and like a lot of it's kind of like raising money and like trying to get like alignment, like things that don't actually like drive to those outcomes, but much worse work? 100%. It is completely true. I am absolutely astounded at the system that has emerged. We have created a class of legislators who are essentially telemarketers for TV stations. (laughs) And that is crazy to me, right? Like the common expectation is that you're going to spend 70, 80% of your time fundraising. That's insane. Insane. And not just that, but like these successful challenger candidates, you know how many calls they're making over the course of a, you know, cycle? 100,000. 20,000. Like, I mean, you know, you're meeting these like goals around, you know, did you make 40 calls an hour? It's like telemarketing. But the solution is, I like to make the joke, like not everybody can run away from the burning building. You know, we got to have some people who run towards the burning building and, do campaign finance reform or whatever, you know, the thing that needs to fix the system. Because right now we're in a system where any, I'm probably going to, you know, regret saying this, but like most rational people will not go into politics because it is, you're going to have to raise money all the time. You know, you're going to put your family at risk from crazies and you're concerned that you're not going to get enough done, which is, you know, fundamentally what you're saying, Ahmad, right? You know, like, yeah, What's the useful time per year that you're actually doing work that you came to? And I think that that right now is too low. Like, no question, it's too low. A solution is not to run away from it, but it is to try to fix it so that, you know, we get more good people. And part of the rationale for me running is I think we need more people who are, you know, at least somewhat conversant in technology and innovation. And how do you help the business sector work well to get good jobs for people and, you know, win-win. Yeah, I think we need more people like that. And although I have nothing personal against lawyers, we could probably do with less lawyers in Congress, right? Like it's the it is the number one profession by a huge margin. And having more entrepreneurs, scientists, engineers, and other flavors of professions, artists, I don't know, you know, would probably be healthy for our nation's legislature. I mean, I would love that too. It just feels like there's only so many people willing to I guess, like, sacrifice the things that you're willing to sacrifice to do it. And it would be nice if it didn't require as much. Yeah, I applaud that. It's really impressive that you're willing to do this and represent technology in government, that that we definitely need more of that. Why the legislative branch versus executive branch? I mean, you, you know, you were chief of staff at NASA before. It feels like you could easily get a senior position in, in the government, you know, with the executive responsibility. 
Being a legislator is a, is a very different game. Why do you decide to do that? Part of the reason was that I had already done the executive branch and I kind of felt like I knew that. And when you're in the executive branch, you know, you have significant influence over a narrow scope of human activity or a relatively narrow scope of human activity. I think as a legislator, you have maybe less deep influence, maybe, but you have a broader scope of activity, right? So you can be working on social policy, technology policy, you know, budgets, international affairs, you know, so you can get involved in in a wider span of things. And to me, on a personal level, that was interesting. What does Congress have today in terms of technology legislation? I mean, we've, we've seen some of these like interviews they do of technology CEOs, and some of them are laughable. They know so little about how technology works. What sort of committees do they have? What kind of structures do they have to educate themselves on the latest technology? I mean, these are people making decisions on laws, you know, for our country that have a massive impact to our economy and, and to the well-being of our people. I'm just curious, what is out there today and what would you hope to put in place or help put in place or help influence in the seat? Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, you know, the committee structure in Congress encompasses the whole of human activity, right? You know, and depending on your thing, you know, the CHIPS Act came out of one piece. And, you know, you have some committees which are authorizing committees like the Science Committee, you know, which will set out the authorizing legislation for different bodies like NASA. And it'll say, like, here's the things that we want NASA to do. And then you'll have the appropriators jump in. But I think what you're getting at is a deeper point, which is like, how do legislators educate themselves on the most important issues of the day. For example, AI. And ostensibly, one way they can do that is through hearings, you know, and if those hearings were actually less performative and more substantive, like that actually would probably be good. Right now, a lot of these hearings are performative because the way that you raise money is you get a viral video clip of you fighting with somebody and then you can go raise, you know, $50,000 off of that clip, which is one of the things that is causing the system to kind of spiral out into a non-productive way. So we need to figure out ways to do that. Another thing that we need to do is, you know, think about how we are retaining really great staff inside Congress, because right now, a lot of staff, this is a generalization, there are some people who stay for a while, but a lot of people are, you know, younger people in their 20s, and then they'll go on to something else later. And so what happens is that the repositories of ongoing knowledge become maybe the legislators, but also the lobbying class who are the ones who persist, you know, across administrations and through different terms of Congress. Like, I think we need more knowledge inside of Congress, more longer term staff. We need to figure out how to compensate those people, you know, in a way that's commensurate with their experience so that we can have really excellent, you know, technology experts who can help members of Congress learn. I will give you one hopeful example. There's a guy named Don Byer, and I think he's in his 70s. I could be wrong. Uh, He was a successful entrepreneur from Virginia. Now he's a member of Congress, but he's gone back to school to basically get a degree in artificial intelligence while he's in Congress. And he's doing that because he thinks that this is arguably the most important technology that, uh, you know, is coming down the path and, and that Congress needs some people who understand that. So it's not all bleak. There are some really good people in Congress. It's just that they sort of get outshouted by the more performative members of the legislature. I'm glad that hopefully you could add to that, you know, knowledge base that Congress has. They certainly need it. Just for the record, I will say if anybody, you know, supports fact-based governance in Congress, they can go to our website, which is georgewhitesides.com, and they can, you know, make a contribution or they can volunteer to join. There are going to be a lot of people in LA or in California who, you know, this is the seat that is the closest to LA where folks who are of the Democratic side, you know, can make a big impact. So is it an open seat or you're fighting an incumbent? It's an incumbent. There's an incumbent there. It's an incumbent, but I believe it was like a, it was a Joe Biden seat in 2020, right? And then it was, um, it was one of the, it, it was a narrow, I think, seat in 2022. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically right. So like the people of this district voted for Biden by 12 points over Trump. So it's the, the third most pro-Biden district in the country that's held by a Republican. It's an important pickup opportunity for the Democratic Party uh, to take the majority in the House. Where's the region again? Like, um, what's the geography? It's the north side of uh, L.A. County. So it goes from Santa Clarita up to Lancaster. So it goes up and over those mountains that if you're flying into L.A., you see those mountains on the to the north, sort of through those mountains up to the Mojave Desert on the other side, Antelope Valley. Great. Yeah. And anyone can donate? You have to be a California resident or? Nope. Anybody can donate, U.S. persons. 
yeah, you can just go online and jump on board the train and it's going to be an exciting campaign. Sounds great. And the calendar is, must be a primary before the election, right? There's a primary in March and then the general election is in um, November of 2024. Excellent. Well, we wish you all the best. I mean, really yeah, impressed with, with your background and all you know, the knowledge you've accumulated in so many different areas. You know, you've had a great career and uh, cheering you on, you know, I think as you try to take that and try to help influence policy as well. Thank you, George. This was great. We learned a ton and just really impressed with the career you've had and all the different areas where you've become uh, so knowledgeable about and, um, you know, hoping that you can bring that knowledge to Congress and all of society can benefit from that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you.